This week's podcast is kindly supported by Newsest. Today, we're highlighting the amazing people who use the Newsest product, such as the professional footballer, Lauren Barnes, who joins me in the studio today. Hey, Lauren, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us. Protein does occur in all plants in varying qualities and quantities. But talk us through a little bit about like why you use a product like Newsest with regards to your nutrition goals. This is an interesting question for me because I um, am really into sustainability and this kind of literally connects both my passions. So sport and sustainability. Newsest uses the cleanest products in the cleanest ways as well. So that was a big draw for me. But in terms of having protein that have very little um, ingredients is something that's also really important to me. And Newsest is really good at that. It tastes great. And I'm not even being biased. There's a lot of plant proteins out there with either texture or taste. And Newsest has always been super smooth. They have a variety of flavors too that I love. And you can mix them in all different things. But yeah, I think for plant-based athlete, it is important to be conscious of how much protein that we're taking in and making sure that we're getting enough. I use mine mostly for recovery, which I think is huge. So right after a workout or a game, I immediately have New Zest back into my system, um, whether it's in a shake or um, I love cooking with New Zest. They've got like an all natural one that you can put in pretty much anything and not have the taste of protein in it. I love it for those reasons. Um, I've been with New Zest now for about seven years. When Jonathan first came up to Seattle, we connected and he is literally like why I love Newsest. He's an incredible guy. He really wants Newsest to kind of portray that as well. Um, the community is incredible and it just makes you fall in love with, you know, the product even more because you know that the people behind it, what they're putting into it is all very clean and natural and they just want to be the best product out there. And for athletes, it's an easy choice. You, you want to put whatever is going to be in your body to be the highest quality, to be organic. And, and at the end of the day, they're also making it in a sustainable way, which is now not hurting the planet either. And for me, that is really important in products that I use. And Newsest like literally checks all the boxes for me. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Lauren. Really, really great to hear your story. And um, yeah, we'll catch you again next time. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And like I said, representing the women in Newsest is incredible for me. And I'm just happy to be able to share my story. If you love the sound of Newsest, please do check out newsest.us forward slash PBN20 to get 20% off your first order. The science of the gut microbiome may be complicated, but the choices that we make in order to eat to fuel a healthy gut microbiome, in fact, are not. They're very simple. We need more plants. Plants have everything that we're looking for to feed and fuel these microbes. Fiber is found in every single plant that's out there, plus mushrooms. But they also contain resistant starches and polyphenols. These are the three types of prebiotics to feed and fuel the gut. Each plant has its own unique ways in which it will interact with your gut microbes. So the key is quite simply to eat a wide variety of plants. Veganism is to be celebrated. It is wonderful. And we are doing the right thing. But we need to also take care of ourselves. Hi, plant friends, and welcome back to another episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm sitting down today with leading gastroenterologist, nutritionist, and author, Dr. Will Bolshevitz. This is actually the second episode in a series about the gut. Dr. B has a special interest in nutrition, the gut microbiome and integrative gastroenterology. 
Known for his advocacy on plant-based nutrition, Will is a plant-based doctor who believes the answers to many of our ailments can be found in our gut microbiome. In 2016, he launched the Instagram account, The Gut Health MD, as a way to connect more directly with his patients and share advice on gut health. In 2020, Dr. B released his book, Fiber Fueled, the plant-based gut health program for losing weight, restoring your health, and optimizing your gut microbiome. In the book, he advocates for a high-fiber plant-based diet, which can be instrumental to boosting metabolism, balancing hormones, and reducing inflammation to achieve optimal health. He is a New York Times, USA Today, and Publisher Weekly's best-selling author, and his latest cookbook, The Fiber-Fueled Cookbook, extends his previous work by delivering deep, flavorful, satisfying plant-based recipes that target food intolerances. That book is out now, I just received my copy, and it is absolutely amazing, jam-packed with some brilliant recipes and lots of cool stuff. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Will Bolshevitz to another episode of the PBN Podcast, where we dig deep into what makes a good diet and a healthy gut, how to combat food intolerances, as well as his own journey as a physician and an author. And as always, if you like this episode, don't forget to comment, like, and share. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. I'm Robbie Lockie, and this is the Plant-Based News Podcast. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Dr. B. What a pleasure to sit down again with you. Robbie, it's a pleasure to be here, my friend. Thank you for having me. If you show me your diet, I can probably tell you what your microbiome looks like. There are many different types of bacteria and fungi. They all seem to have different functions, different things that they do. The food that you eat is what is going to select which of these fungi and bacteria are going to thrive and multiply and grow within your gut. If you change your diet, you will see changes in your microbiome within a few days. The food that you just had at your last meal has probably already changed your microbiome in the time since. So those of you who want to hear Will's full story and learn about all the things that got you to this point, please go back to episode 58 and you can explore the wonders of the microbiome, a voyage through our gut, where we spoke to Dr. B uh, a few months ago. Today's episode is going to dive a little bit deeper into the gut and the sort of the world that is within it because it is obviously a vast topic and we could probably speak for months about it. <laughs> There's still so much that we do not know. But I'd love to start off with a little bit of background again and talk about your personal food journey and how your research has informed your lifestyle choices personally today. Well, it's interesting, Robbie, because I come from a perspective. So first of all, I am a medical doctor and this to me was my childhood dream. So I am, you know, sort of I've, I've managed to bring to life what I've always wanted to do. Since that decision around age 16, I basically was pursuing this mission of wanting to become a medical doctor, wanting to help people to heal. And in, in that path, I entered into a very rigorous program where, you know, I was working when I was in medical school, studying seven days a week. I mean, basically wake up in the morning at seven o'clock, study until seven or 8 p.m. and then repeat tomorrow. During my residency, I was working in the hospital. I would, you know, be on call every third or fourth night, work 16 or 18 hours at a time, sometimes 30 hour shifts and do that six days a week. And then on your day off, you're just so exhausted. You just collapse and you try to get your laundry done. And that's about it. During this process of trying to fulfill, you know, this, this dream of mine, I was forced to elevate convenience in my life. I needed shortcuts in order to get by, to be completely honest with you. So I elevated food that frankly was easy 
and quick and convenient. And I won't lie, I liked the way that it tasted. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I was probably addicted to it. As this happened, my body changed, but not in a way that I liked. And it felt like I woke up one day and I was in my 30s and I'm looking at this man in the mirror and he's 50 pounds overweight, 20 kilos overweight. You know, there's the blood pressure pills sitting on the sink and there's the high cholesterol and you're trying to change that. And there's the extremely low self-esteem, even though to an outsider you would say, but Dr. B, like you were accomplishing all your goals. How could you have low self-esteem? I didn't feel good about myself. Um, I didn't like the man I saw in the mirror and something had to change. But the problem, Robbie, is that the pills and the procedures that were in my medical uh, tool bag, they weren't going to be the solution for me. And I needed something else. And I, I tried exercising my way out of it. It did not work. Eventually, I turned my attention to diet. It actually was meeting the person who's now my wife. <laughs> and this was 10 years ago. And we were just starting to date. But we would go on a date and I would witness her ordering just a whole bunch of plants. And I was just like, at the, at the time, I'm like, who is this person? Because I had never been around a vegetarian or even a vegan. Like, I don't think I knew a single person who was vegan at the time. But what I did see is that she ate until she was full. She loved her food. She had a great smile on her face. She had control over her health. And we would finish, finish the meal and like, I would have to go home and like, you know, tend to a hangover. And she was ready to go for round two of the date. And it opened my mind to the possibility that to me was actually quite radical is that maybe the food that I was raised on, maybe the food that I love is in fact the problem. So it motivated me to start making small changes. And I just started making small changes and I would double down and triple down and I would feel instantly energized. My skin was clearing up. My hair was thickening. My nails were uh, more firm, not brittle. And I, I, I noticed those changes instantly. And the next thing I know, the weight is melting off my body. My self-esteem is surging. Anxiety is going away. The blood pressure pills go in the trash. And I start feeling alive again. And it was so powerful in my life that even though I had this medical education from these great institutions, Georgetown, Northwestern, the University of North Carolina, I started to question my own education. Why was, I, why, why was I not taught this? I started to really dig into the literature of nutrition. You know, So I would work full-time during the day, and then I would go home at night, and it would be like 9, 10 o'clock at night, and I'm sifting through papers and discovering stuff that is blowing my mind and making me feel compelled to bring it into the clinic. So I started bringing it into the clinic and treating my patients and they would undergo radical transformations. But the difference is that I'm a gastroenterologist. So for them, it wasn't necessarily weight loss, but it could be fixing their IBS or it could be throwing away their proton pump inhibitor that they use for acid reflux, or it could be putting their Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis into remission. But these were powerful testimonials on an individual basis to the point that I felt like I needed to share this story with the world. So I did something that was very uncomfortable for me, to be totally honest, which is that I started an Instagram account in 2016. And no one really seemed to care too much <laughs> for a very long time. There was a lot of humility. Then in 2018, I went on Simon Hill's podcast, Plant Proof, which is now The Proof. Wow. It's crazy how there's just that, that strong link between your gut and your mind. Is there is there any other examples of diseases which are associated with similar sort of changes in our gut? 
The list is a laundry list. And so, you know, just starting off with the GI conditions, we already mentioned IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease. But, you know, there's some that are interesting. We have discovered that people who drink too much and develop cirrhosis, it's because there's changes in gut bacteria. Fatty liver, which is associated with type 2 diabetes, which is becoming the number one, it's soon to become the number one cause of cirrhosis in the United States. Fatty liver is associated with changes in gut bacteria. The liver is not connected. I mean, the liver is not really connected to the gut. It's not part of the tube, if you know what I mean. It's mm. connected, but it's not part of the tube. Yet the gut bacteria down in the colon affect the manifestation of disease in the liver. And then there's all of these conditions outside of the gut that you would never think. But if you look at what's happening in modern society, in my country and in yours, you look at the diseases that are emerging and you think about them in the context of what's going on inside of us, inside of our gut, you start to realize that most modern diseases are related back to this. Coronary artery disease has been associated with changes in gut bacteria. Most types of cancers have been associated with changes in gut bacteria. We had an episode go viral. Next thing I knew, there was the opportunity to write a book. And then that book is Fiber Fueled. It came out in May of 2020. And it was a New York Times bestseller. And it has now sold 200,000 copies. Amazing. And the rest is history, as they say. I absolutely love that story, Dr. B. I actually, before the episode, typed your name into Google. And the first thing that comes up says, Dr. Will Bolshevitz, before and after. Yeah. <laughs> Which just, just shows that how compelling your story is about how you know you really struggle with your weight and struggle with your with your self-esteem, as you say, which is just a reoccurring story over and over in the world we live today, where we live such sedentary lifestyles or we live such high-stress lifestyles, and we often resort to those um, high-calorie, high-salt, sugar, oil foods, um, which obviously give you that momentary pleasure, but simultaneously they are causing harm to your body, and that can be vegan or non-vegan foods. But it's uh, it's great to see that you you were able to completely turn things around, and obviously we we have your wife to thank for for putting you in the right path and heading you in the right direction, which you really really took to, and you know creating a book is obviously no 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 simple task, and and, and also getting it into an, into a bestseller list as well is an incredible achievement. So definitely hats off to you for that. It's uh, it's a fantastic one. Hey, my name is Rachel. Glad you could make it. It is week four, the final week in the Fiberfield 28 day plan. I'm almost done with it. I feel like I'm going into week four, feeling great. Like I said, week three, I've been feeling pretty good. For breakfast, I did a quick fix option of making the superfood smoothie and only change I made, I put some mixed berries in instead of just strawberries. And then I made the turmeric latte. So I made this with coconut milk. There's, you know, different spices and turmeric and vanilla. Smoothie, like seven and a half out of 10. It's fine, I've gotten used to this smoothie. Ooh. Oh my God, that is so good. That tastes like I got it like at a restaurant. That's like a 10 out of 10 turmeric latte. That tastes so good and I made it myself. Oh my God. Lunch is supercharged miso soup. So there's the biome broth, there's wakame seaweed, tofu, some veggies in there. That is so good. It's so flavorful. I'm giving this a nine out of 10. I am excited. Definitely don't believe I've gained weight. If anything, I feel like I've 
lost a little bit of weight or slimmed down a little bit. I, like I said in my last video, like I don't weigh myself, I'm not measuring myself. And I feel like I'm just so much more like satisfied with my meals. You know, I eat however much I want. And on all of this, I've had like no cravings for any junk food. I feel like I think of like, you know, like vegan junk food stuff that are the vegan cheeses and the crackers and like the chip things. Those are things I feel like I would be like, mm, that sounds good. Like just like a normal, like you have like cravings for things, but I'm not, like I'm not having cravings for anything. I feel like that just shows that I'm getting my nutritional needs met. The reason that I'm so passionate about this entire thing is that, again, like it comes from the original source of motivation, which is that my goal has always been to be a healer. And what I'm seeing is this escalation of, of opportunity for me to do this on a grander scale, where in a clinic, I can treat one person, but with books, with courses, with the internet, I have the ability to connect to hopefully millions of people. And that's where I'm hoping to go. Mm, it's a fascinating subject. I've personally been touched by you know some of the work that you've done over the years because I've experienced some problems with my gut and also just my general well-being. I've experienced a lot of chronic pain over the last few years, and I could not figure out what it was. My next question is about food intolerances, but I'm particularly interested in the effect they have on the body. So I've recently discovered that I am intolerant to gluten. Um, I've, I've been tested for celiac disease and have found that it is negative. However, before I realized this, I was having regular, what I called pain attacks at night where all my joints would flare up and I'd get this terrible pain that would wake me up. And I'm of course, knocking back the cocodamol and the naproxen and the Lyrica and all these drugs to try and sleep and function, removed gluten from my diet. And for three weeks now, I've had not a single pain attack. What is going on in the body with, with a body like mine reacting to a food stuff like gluten, which is obviously ubiquitous, it's everywhere, it's in all our foods. What is actually happening? I've obviously got some kind of food intolerance. So firstly, the question is, what is happening in the body when that occurs? And how common is this type of intolerance? So to answer this question, I think that it's first important to acknowledge the nuance that exists with gluten, and the very passionate feelings that people may have about gluten in general. And it's kind of funny, Robbie, because a very prominent uh, plant-based organization shared a quote from me on Instagram, and I could not believe in the comment section how upset people were with me with this quote, but it's because they actually didn't read the article, which explains the nuance and the context. And so to like sort of talk about gluten, it's very easy to vilify it or also to make it sound like it's totally fine. And really, the truth is in the middle, and that's why we have to unpack this. So now, out of curiosity, I hope you don't mind me asking, but what what testing did you have for celiac disease? Because I would love to teach on that for a moment. Mm, I did the, the standard NHS National Health Service test. I went for a blood test. I'm not exactly sure the name of the test, but it's the it, it was a standard test, and so nothing nothing advanced. I would say it's just a, a regular. You believe it was an antibody test. It was not. They didn't talk to you about a genetic thing. No. Okay, great. So I think this is an important point. Because first of all, let me, let me start with this, that gluten can interact with our body in different ways, but also wheat can interact with our body in different ways. And there's going to be basically one of a couple different possibilities that every single one of us is going to fit into. And the most common of these possibilities is, is going to be that you have absolutely no, this is not you personally, but the, 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 for most people, the most common possibility is going to be that you have no issue with gluten or with wheat. And in that setting, those people who do not have celiac disease and do not have an issue with wheat or with gluten, they should be consuming it. 
just high quality. Okay. And what I mean by high quality is like ideally organic, particularly in the United States, because wheat is often sprayed with glyphosate as a desiccant to dry it out. But if it's organic, they can't do that. So I'm really referring to high quality bread that comes from a real baker, ideally high quality flour that goes into that. I love sourdough. I think sourdough is so good for us. And we find that sourdough is consumed in many of the blue zones. That's what they that's what they eat. What exactly is sourdough? It's 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 yeast-free bread making, isn't it? Well, the, the the cool thing about sourdough, it's almost like nature is asking us to make bread out of the grain because the the microbes that we need, so like creating bread requires actually microbes. We can't do it in a sterile environment. So like baker's yeast, it's a yeast, right? It's alive and it helps us to um, to leaven the bread. Now with sourdough, we actually have the microbes that we need, which do include yeasts. They actually are already a part of the microbiome of the grain. And even if you grind up that grain and you create flour, as long as it's not at high heat, as long as you're not bleaching it with chlorine, you will actually have these microbes that are a part of it. And those microbes, if you add water, quite simply, and that's it, you add water and you allow the microbes to do their job, they will transform that flour and it will start to have a tartness to it. And that's the acid that these microbes produce and they're fermenting it. And this is actually what I'm describing right now is the process of creating a sourdough starter. And then the sourdough starter ultimately becomes the sort of vector that you apply to making a loaf of sourdough bread. So it's kind of interesting to consider that those microbes are already there. It's, it's very similar to making sauerkraut, where the microbes that we need to make sauerkraut are already living on the leaves of the cabbage. We don't need to inject microbes. We just quite simply put cabbage underwater. Coming back to this gluten topic, real quick, the reason that I want to just say that if you do not have celiac disease and you do not have a medical reason to avoid gluten, the important point here is that we are wildly under-consuming whole grains, and whole grains protect us from heart disease and from cancer. Part of that is because they're so good for our microbiome. They They contain three types of prebiotics. Prebiotics are food for the microbiome, fiber, resistant starches, and polyphenols. You'll find all three in whole grains, just like you'll find all three in legumes. When we have studied people who go gluten-free and they don't need to go gluten-free, we have discovered they actually increase their risk of heart disease. So that's the reason that I feel very passionately that if you don't have a medical need to eliminate gluten, you should not, but it should be high quality gluten sources. Or if you do go gluten-free, that's okay. Just make sure that you're getting whole grains that are gluten-free, like amaranth and sorghum and teff and you go down the line quinoa now with you robbie you do need to be gluten-free based upon what you're describing to me and i I do want to unpack though the thought process behind this coming at this from a medical doctor's perspective like the way that i would come at this the first question in my mind as a medical doctor is do you have celiac disease the type of symptoms that you're describing joint pains could easily be celiac disease and the problem is that the most frequently used test, right? Which may be the test that's endorsed and accepted in the NHS. And frankly, in the United States, it's the exact same test that the vast majority of patients receive from their doctor are antibody tests. And the vast majority of cases of celiac disease that I've diagnosed in my career, because I'm actually the guy who diagnoses it as a gastroenterologist, the vast majority of cases are people that have a negative antibody test. That's a false negative. And so there's a lack, there's a lack of reliability to these tests. So there are two tests that are reliable for people to be aware of for us to answer this question, do you have celiac disease? 
So one of the options is to do the genetic test. And the thing about the genetic test is that it can't actually prove that you have celiac disease, Robbie, but it could potentially prove that you do not have celiac disease. Celiac is a genetically motivated condition. In order for you to have it, you have to have the gene. Now, the gene is common. The gene exists in about one of three people in our countries. So it's very high. Now, the majority of people who have that gene, they carry that gene their entire life and they never actually activate celiac. But if you are one of the people who does not have the gene, and we, we discovered that on the test, we have actually proven at that point that what is happening with your body is not, in fact, celiac. And that's an important point. Like, for example, a person like you, this is an important point, not just in terms of implications for yourself, but implications for family members as well. So that when we are constructing sort of a family health history, we're able to say, well, there is a family history of celiac disease. So it's something that we ha- need to have a heightened level of awareness with that. The alternative test, Robbie, which I think depending on the health system in which people live, like it may not be easily available in the, in the UK. And frankly, even in the US, you need to kind of pull a doctor's leg a little bit to get them to do this. But the other test is to do an upper endoscopy. And that's, that's a medical procedure. Um, it's very quick. It literally could take three minutes. And a flexible tube about the size of my pinky has a light and a camera on it. And it allows a, a guy like me, a gastroenterologist, to go down into the small intestine and obtain biopsies. And those biopsies, now you have to actually be consuming gluten in order for us to do this. But those biopsies would allow us, that's the, actually the gold standard test for diagnosing celiac disease. Celiac disease to me with you is an unresolved question. It's, it remains a possibility. And if I'm, if I were personally your doctor, I would first want to answer this question because that would basically answer everything if the answer is yes. And if the answer is no, then it allows me to be more clear what you have, which is that if the answer is no, you do not have celiac disease, then you do have a gluten related sensitivity. And this is something that does exist, is not common, like is actually less common than celiac disease. A person will have inflammatory type symptoms that occur outside the gut. So talking about like joint pains in the way that you described. What, what is going on in when you talk about inflammatory symptoms? What is actually going on on a sort of biochemical? We don't have to get too geeky, but if you, if you, if you want to get geeky about it, so I'd love to joint. talk. Yeah. yeah, what's actually happening? Why is there pain? Because I know a lot of people who experience chronic pain, um, and I'm wondering whether it is food related. Because obviously, for years, I was unaware of the fact that what I was eating could be have been causing this chronic pain. I just was accepting it, taking the drugs, and just accepting it, realizing that it could have been gluten. Uh, I went to a doctor, had the glu- the uh, celiac test, test came back negative, and I continued to eat gluten and I continued to experience chronic pain remove the gluten from my life for two weeks and three weeks now, almost a month and no pain. So, you know, food intolerances and and sensitivities to certain foods, as you say, it's very, very difficult to diagnose if you, if you don't have the right tests, but you know, on a chemical level, like what is actually happening to us when we are consuming foods that are causing this, this pain or this inflammation? Well, and I think it's very important before I even answer this question to point out that this is mm. what I'm about to describe is very specific to what was happening with your body, but mm-hmm. not necessarily what happens to other people who consume gluten containing foods. Because again, I'm trying to avoid where we actually vilify gluten as if like, sure, of course, we don't want to demonize it. Definitely. Right. 
in in the person again this is not uh, very common this is actually less common than celiac disease but in the person who has an inflammatory reaction to gluten where it's manifesting with joint pain which is what you've been describing this is activation of the immune system so your immune system is reacting to this protein and then you are manifesting these joint pains as a result of the immune system being at a heightened level of activity so if we were to zoom in on this joint and apply a microscope we would probably see that there's inflammatory cells that's the expectation So now people who have similar manifestations from gluten, again, assuming that they do not have celiac disease, but you could still manifest these joint pains, you could manifest a rash, you could get migraine headaches, there's other or other neurologic symptoms. There's other symptoms that people could potentially get from gluten. But Robbie, the most common symptom that people get from gluten is bloating or gas or GI distress. And if a person comes to my clinic and says, Dr. B, I consume bread and then I don't feel well, the first question will always be, does my patient have celiac disease? Once I answer that question in the way that we've already described, if it's exclusively GI symptoms, if it's just like gas bloating, cramping, maybe even diarrhea, the chances are, based upon the research that we have, that this is in fact not gluten related at all which may surprise a lot of people. We have misnamed the condition. We call it a gluten sensitivity. When in fact, the sensitivity is to fructans. So if you look at wheat or you look at gluten-containing foods, these, you know, grains, wheat, they're complex. And it's not, they're not just a bag of gluten. gluten. Right. Right. They're not just a bag of gluten. That speaks to the the, the issue and the challenge that we have with nutrition. We've really like overly simplified food and we talk about fats and carbs and proteins. And we we tend to be people, non sort of medical people tend to be a bit reductionist when it comes to nutrition and food. Totally. The medical people. Right. I mean, I wrote a book called Fiber Fueled, right? So I simplified everything down to fiber, and yet the plant is far more complicated, and the plant contains many healing molecules beyond just fiber that include phytochemicals and polyphenols. Mm-hmm. But it's fascinating to talk about that. And I think, yeah, if you can continue regarding the, what did you say? The fructals, fruct- Fr- uh, fructans, fructans, Fruc- yes. Fructans, fructans, right. So these are, this is a form of FODMAPs. So now people who consume dairy, I don't, I don't consume dairy, nor do I recommend that people consume dairy. I see no reason for it. But for people who consume dairy, 70% of the world is lactose intolerant, right? So they will they consume a regular amount of milk or ice cream and they get symptoms that are you know, consequences of this lactose. Well, lactose is actually a carbohydrate. It's one of the rare carbohydrates that exists in animal products. There's a group of many types of different carbohydrates, which actually are good for our microbiome. They're prebiotic. They feed the good guys, yet in a person who has a damaged gut, such as an irritable bowel syndrome, they may suffer symptoms when they consume these foods at an amount that their body is not capable of processing. And that includes the stuff in beans, galactans. And then these are sugars, right? Sugar chain, sugar. So they're either sugars, like for example, fructose is a single sugar molecule. Lactose is two sugar molecules combined. And sometimes it's a chain of sugars. So like galactans and and legumes are almost like fiber. It's a chain of several sugars tied together. And fructans you will find in whole grains, like gluten-containing grains like wheat, or you'll also find it in onions and garlic. Mm. 
Right. Okay. This is interesting. It's all coming together. Of course, I, re- I remember this in your book. This is why people's guts get so irritated because these substances, these these chemicals, they the body reacts to them in a way that is oh, like an overreaction, right? What you described with this joint pain was an inflammatory reaction. That was your immune system getting activated. But in a person, the routine person who has irritable bowel syndrome, and they consume these foods and they get gas or bloating or discomfort, that's not actually the immune system. That actually, believe it or not, is sloppy digestion. Your body is struggling to process and unpack these foods. And part of the reason why is because we have outsourced digestion in many ways to the gut microbiome, particularly when it comes to the digestion of many of our carbohydrates, particularly the complex carbohydrates like fructans. So they did an interesting study, Robbie, which really shocks many people, including myself, where they took a group of people who they had proven they did not have celiac disease, okay? So these are non-celiac people, and they gave them three weeks worth of breakfast bars. And the breakfast bars would be uh, secretly, discreetly embedded with either a placebo or gluten or fructans. And the goal was to see like what is going to elicit a response. Now, you take a group of people and you give them a placebo, they're still, in this case, they still have symptoms. The placebo becomes the baseline that we compare to. The shocking thing is that when people were consuming the gluten-based bar, they actually had less symptoms than the placebo. That's very interesting. So the gluten is not triggering the symptoms. But when they ate the fructan-based bar, those people did have symptoms. In fact, they were triggered. It's important to understand that for the average person who is struggling to process, for example, bread, if you don't have celiac disease, mm-hmm. the most likely diagnosis is that you have a fructan intolerance, not a gluten intolerance. And a fr- the beauty of this- Which is similar to lactose intolerance in a way, right? Similar to lactose intolerance. And the beauty mm-hmm. of this is that you, you can overcome this. So the solution is not necessarily to avoid and remove the food. Again, with you personally, you, you have a unique situation because I think that you have an inflammatory reaction. Which is my immune system, right? I'm, I'm waving with my right hand in the, in the camera if you're listening. And on the left is your gut, which is your microbiome, two different parties, essentially. One party on the right reacts in an inflammatory way, you know, with your cytokines and your and your white blood cells, etc. And on the left is your gut, which is your microbiome, which is the bacterium, which react in a particular way if they're not, I guess, equipped to process a huge influx of fructanes. That is correct. And now these things, the the gut and you, you, you know, have your gut microbiome on one side and you have your immune system on the other side, and we may call them separate. And there is a barrier between them. They are not actually mixing together, but that barrier is a single layer of cells that is as thin as like it is literally a fraction of one of the hairs off of your head. They are actually in close proximity to one another. 70% of your immune system lives in your gut. Do you mean as in the bacteria? Uh, it lives it lives actually in the lining of the intestines. The, the white blood, the, well, the cells, the, the, the immune cells. The lymphoid cells, that's correct. Yeah, so the lymphoid cells, um, they call it the GALT, gut-associated lymphoid tissue. And so the GALT is actually lining the intestine, and it's in very close proximity to these microbes, but they're not actually mixing together. They're on two sides of a small fence. You said that in the last episode that when you think about it, your gut is actually on the outside. <laughs> 
you've got your mouth and your your butt right everything goes through but you've got the 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 inside which is got as you say separated by this thin layer and it makes sense that the that the the army cells you could say the warrior cells are protecting you from the outside world but it's so fascinating to think about the gut as being something that does exist on the outside of your body in many ways but it's well because you're yeah, it's it is bizarre to think that your gut is outside the body. You know, it's it's like conceptually similar to your skin. It's where commerce takes place, right? It's where your body is exchanging with the outside world, with the environment. Whereas, like for your skin, for example, is basically just a wall. It's a barrier. So you're correct. The the you 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 position seventy percent of your military right there in the gut because this is where you're actually interacting with the outside world, and you want to protect yourself. So yeah, it's fascinating. It is fascinating and important to remember as well. And and I think over the years, it had a fair bit of experience with Chinese medicine to try and deal with some of the issues that I've experienced with chronic pain over the years. And Chinese medicine is all focused around the gut, that the gut is the center of our health because we are what we eat, right? If we are eating the wrong things, it's going to have that knock-on effect in every aspect of our body, which is so fascinating. But I want to touch a bit on the connection between gut health and COVID-19. We're still living in the midst of a pandemic. What is the connection between the gut itself, which is obviously, as you say, much of our immune system and a virus, which is obviously made up of proteins and, and lipids, our, our immune system reacts to it when it comes into our body. What should and could we be doing? And, and what is that link between a, a virus, which is obviously an external element that comes in and our body reacts in a specific way? And if we're lucky, it doesn't react. And we have, we're asymptomatic and we, you know, we, we get a positive test and, you know, six, seven, eight, nine days later, it's gone. And in other people, you can end up in a hospital on a breath later, right? And, and seriously, seriously ill. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the questions that since the beginning of the pandemic we have been trying to answer, and I think that we know much more today than we did in the very beginning. But if we go back to that place, you know, in in March of 2020, I had a lot of time on my hands because our clinic had completely shut down, so I was no longer seeing patients. I didn't have any source of income, and I was supposed to launch Fiber Fueled, yet all of the podcasts that I had scheduled were canceling because I could no longer travel, and so I was contemplating. What is going on with this pandemic? My suspicion was that this involves the gut microbiome because when a person does land in the intensive care unit and they're very sick and they require a ventilator and life support in order to sustain their life, that actually is their immune system, their own immune system that has you know, basically gone nuclear. It's gone completely overboard. It's not the virus itself that's doing that. The immune system is connected to the gut microbiome. We can't separate the two. I mean, as an example of this, we know that if you study people who have autoimmune diseases, that includes celiac disease or lupus or Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, we could go down the line, multiple sclerosis, there's so many. Every single one of these conditions, if you zoom in on the gut based upon our available research, it indicates that there is damage or injury to the gut microbiome. So you you can't separate the gut from the immune system. They're intertwined. It's very interesting, Robbie, because my suspicion going into all this was that the gut and particularly our our dietary choices would prove to be critical in the fight against COVID-19. Part of that came from seeing an article, seeing a science study from 2018 predating the pandemic. Now, like, let me say I'm not a huge fan of animal-based studies, but if they're there, I will interpret them and use them as as part of building my arguments in science. So they did an animal model study where they infected mice with a respiratory virus, not COVID-19, but a respiratory virus in a similar way. And they fed these mice 
either a high fiber diet or a low fiber diet. The scientists actually predicted that on the high fiber diet, the mice would be worse off. And the reason being that fiber is anti-inflammatory. So they suspected, oh, well, if it's anti-inflammatory, it must mean that the immune system won't be able to fight the virus. In some cases, the immune system, our own immune system becomes the problem. And in this study, the mice that were fed the high fiber diet, they lived longer. They had better lung function and they recovered more quickly. And the, the scientists got into a tizzy. They, they couldn't figure out, they're like, what's going on here? So they decided to dive deeper and try to understand this. And what they discovered was that the fiber was coming into contact with the gut microbiome to produce short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. And these short-chain fatty acids were interacting with the immune system, shaping the immune system, almost like a general on a battlefield, and directing it so that we would get the appropriate response where the right cells are basically being called in to, to remove the virus, but that we don't actually allow the immune system to go nuclear and go overboard and actually be the cause of the issue. So now this was a mouse study and mouse studies, we always have to interpret with a grain of salt because those are not human studies. We have to look for verification in humans. But actually at the time I wrote an editorial that I submitted to the New York Times and they said, no, I understand why. But it was my suspicion that we would discover that quite simply eating a healthy diet could protect us from COVID-19. And when we fast forward to January of 2021, yes, January of 2021, published in the journal Gut, which is the top European gastroenterology journal, they showed us that there's actually changes, there, there's a disturbance of the gut microbiome that exists in people who have COVID-19. And this change that exists, it actually becomes more pronounced as you indicate the severity of the COVID-19, meaning that like people with more severe COVID-19 have a more overt, intense disruption of their microbiome. Now, what is the change? When you zoom in and you look at the specific microbes that are involved, people with severe COVID-19 were missing the microbes that produce short-chain fatty acids. Where did they go? They're depleted. They because have of, Because of the because diet. Well, we believe that what we don't know prior to them being infected with the virus, right? These are mm -hmm. just people who have actually, they've been infected and now we're testing their microbiome going forward. So they may have had a, a severe case because of the lack of those specific microbes. It, it may have been because of the lack of the, those specific microbes prior to the virus, right. or it may be that the virus is the virus we expect is changing the microbiome. Caused caused the depletion of those specific microbes. Correct. Yes, correct. So, but the but the key here is that we we see which microbes are missing, which infers something very specific. Perhaps short chain fatty acids are the linchpin. Perhaps that is the key to protecting ourselves from severe COVID-19. Accelerate again another six months. It takes time for us to get through these studies and do what we want to do. But there was a, a study of frontline healthcare workers from six different countries around the globe that includes the UK, that includes the United States, and four others. And this predates the availability of a vaccine. So no one was vaccinated. And they looked at their likelihood of developing moderate to severe COVID-19 based upon their dietary pattern. And what they discovered is that people who were consuming a plant-based diet were at 73% reduced likelihood of developing moderate to severe COVID-19. Which is incredibly high, right? That's an amazing, I mean, that's basically 
75% reduction of the likelihood of you getting severe COVID-19. That's amazing. They looked at pescatarian. To be clear, pescatarian diet is a person who consumes mostly plants with some fish. And they didn't get the benefit of a purely plant-based diet, but it's reinforcing and validating this idea because they had a 59% reduction of moderate to severe COVID-19 among people with a pescatarian diet. Now, the group that did the worst, which is interesting, were actually the people on a low-carb diet. And here's the thing about a low-carb diet. So first of all, fiber is a carb. (laughs) If you reduce carbs, you are most likely going to reduce fiber. And there are dietitians or people who are very educated and nuanced in their understanding of nutrition who could formulate, like, you know, going out of their way to create a way to do this. You can formulate a low-carb diet that still has fiber. It's possible. But that's not the way people are eating in the real world, right? The average person in the real world is just eating a lot of meat and avoiding the carbs. And so... In this study, the people who were consuming a low-carb diet compared to the plant-based diet were multiple times more likely to get moderate to severe COVID-19. I believe it was about four times more likely to get moderate to severe COVID-19. Now, one last quick point, Robbie, I hope you don't mind, is that the next question that we're grappling with is what's the deal with long covid And why do some people get long COVID where they still have symptoms that persist for months compared to the person who, you know, they get COVID and then they move on. What we saw in that original microbiome study from gut in January of 2021 is that the changes and disruption of the microbiome were still there and present 30 days later. So the microbiome was still disturbed. And there's a more recent study that just came out very recently looking at long COVID and looking at the gut microbiome. And what we're seeing is as you look over time of these people with long COVID, you're seeing basically the same pattern that we saw in the gut microbiome study from before, which is that there is the absence of short chain fatty acid producing microbes. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, I have COVID, or if you're saying, I want to protect myself from COVID, and I want to reduce my likelihood of developing severe COVID, and I want to reduce my likelihood of long COVID, I'm sitting here and saying, I think that the answer is a plant-based diet. And I'm expecting either this year or early next year, us to have a nutrition study on long COVID where we actually demonstrate that people who consume a plant-based diet are less likely to get long COVID. That's what I'm expecting the study to say. It sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like the healthiest diet to protect ourselves from something like COVID-19 is a plant-based diet. And we obviously, as you say, the data is becoming more and more compelling. You know, the answers to this will be revealed with more research. I have, touch wood, not had COVID yet two years in and still haven't been infected. And I've been around people with it. My partner had it at Christmas in my in our, in our house. Um, I've had friends, I've hugged with it, been close proximity to them. Um, I consider myself very healthy. I eat a very plant diverse diet. I've always got your voice in my head, (laughs) diversity of plants, diversity of plants. So, uh, you know, whenever I go out and eat, I always try and make sure I have a a very nutrient rich diet. And I like to think that the reason I haven't got COVID yet is because of my immune system. That being said, obviously, there's a very, very hot debate about vaccines, the immune system, natural immunity. The immunity is all about the gut health, it's all about our immune system, our immune response. 
What do you say to people who say, I don't want a vaccine. I'm very happy to go with my diet and my health and my nutrition. You know, are we risking our health? And I know it's not a simple answer because obviously there's so many, you know, variables at play here, but are are vaccines really the silver bullet or really should we be looking and should we be encouraging people to be thinking about both? Obviously it's important to have a vaccine because it can give you, protect you and those around you, but there isn't enough conversation being said about vaccine efficacy because if you aren't healthy and you are obese and you are drinking and smoking and eating a bad diet and, and have and have a bunch of other chronic diseases, your vaccine is is unlikely to be effective. Is this correct? Uh, the fact that the vaccine would be um, not effective in a person who has those health issues? Is that the question? Less, less, the question is, is that we talk about vaccines being the silver bullet. There's lots of conversation in the media all the time, vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. I am personally a supporter of vaccines. I believe the benefits far outweigh the risks. But I think that the conversation around nutrition in support of vaccines isn't healthy healthy people, healthy diets in com- combination with vaccines isn't being discussed enough. But there are people who say, I prefer to focus on nutrition and have a healthy diet and a healthy lifestyle. Do I really need a vaccine? So I guess it's two, two pointed, two pointed question. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that this opens up into a very important conversation that we all need to consider, which is that why would we choose diet and lifestyle and completely ignore the amazing breakthroughs that we have had in through research in the 21st century and the 20th century. There's really no reason for us to feel like we need to go back in time to the 1800s and pretend that we exist predating modern healthcare. And I'm quite sure that if you find yourself extremely sick, you're going to beg for healthcare to take you in and take care of you. But why would you allow yourself to get to that point by ignoring it along the way? But on the flip side, like I'm a medical doctor who believes so wholeheartedly in diet and lifestyle, and I don't understand why we create healthcare systems that ignore the opportunity to prevent the disease before it ever even happens. The problem is that there is no such thing as a silver bullet. And I do think that one of the, this is a very nuanced sort of conversation, Robbie, because I do think that we have politicized on both sides. And we've entrenched ourselves and we're just not going to (laughs) move no matter what happens and no matter what the science says. But at the end of the day, science evolves and we need to evolve with the science and ride the waves. It's more, it's really the focus, I guess, of the question should be around natural immunity versus vaccines. Should they be mutually exclusive? Should we do people with with COVID-19 specifically? Are we safe enough to rely on natural immunity along with a healthy diet and nutrition? Obviously, we know that the vaccine, the virus itself affects you know quite a small percentage of our entire population. But are people really missing the point by by ignoring a vaccine that could potentially save their life if they do have a, a severe reaction to the virus if they get it? I so I think so. I mean, my my here's here's my position on this. I think that individuals have the right to choose what they want to do for themselves and and with their body. But I I also think that they need to be smart enough to actually look at the risks and the benefits, and weigh them, and what are the facts, not like hypotheticals, and not assumptions, but actual facts. So when I weigh the facts, what I know is that we overtly have a reduction of severe disease in people who receive the vaccine. And when people die, they die because of severe disease. Myself, I'm 41 years old and I have seen people who are my age and they have, they have passed and I can't allow that to happen. I have two kids. My wife is pregnant. We're about to have baby number three. So 
The decision Congratulations. for me, thank you. The decision for me was not actually a difficult decision. And I wrote about it very publicly in December of 2020. I wrote about it very publicly, which is that quite simply, the benefits to me looking at the available information clearly outweigh the risks. So I chose to receive the vaccine. I've received it three times. My wife has been vaccinated and my children have been vaccinated. And that's the choice that we made for our own family. Now, I, I do think that people have the right to choose, but I also want to use my position as a medical doctor and a leading voice to try to share high quality information that I hope they can trust. And if you see it otherwise, and you don't agree with me, that's your choice. And you are an adult and you will live with those results one way or the other. And I do wish everyone well. But to me, just speaking broadly, including the vaccine conversation, but even more broadly than this, I do feel that there is a group of people within the plant-based movement who choose natural immunity and they basically reject 21st century healthcare. And I don't think it needs to be that way. But on the flip side, there also is the modern state of healthcare in both your country and mine that rejects that diet and lifestyle matter. And that makes absolutely no sense to me either. Why would we not take the best of 2022, the information that we have from a diet and lifestyle perspective, and blend that with the appropriately curated choices that we can make within modern healthcare to protect ourselves? Because the irony is that the, the, the healthier you are, the better your nutrition, the more effective a vaccine is. Because I think to take a step back a bit, I think the problem from my perspective is, is education. Most people do not understand how a vaccine works. I think a lot of the public have this idea of a, of, a, of a substance being injected into your bloodstream and it's sort of living in your bloodstream, causing these DNA changes and goodness knows all these other, I don't even that's want to get into possible. it. That's, yeah, right. There's just so much misinformation about vaccines. It actually right. hurts my head. The irony is, is that all the vaccine does, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but what it does, is it, it, it informs your immune system to be on the lookout for a specific protein right? The spike protein. And so your immune system becomes armed with that knowledge. So it's your immune system that does the work thanks to the vaccine. It heightens the immune system's reaction. That's why sometimes, unfortunately, some people have uh, an overinflated reaction to the to vaccines because obviously it reacts, it has an immune response. But the vast majority of people have a positive re reaction and they, they take on the information and their body protects them from the virus. It's not the vaccine protecting you, it's your own body. And if you're healthy and you have great nutrition, the effectiveness, the efficacy of that vaccine is going to be tenfold. Don't quote me on that, but it's going to be more effective, right? So I just think that the conversation around nutrition and vaccines needs to be done in tandem rather than vaccines or nutrition, vaccines or immu immu um, natural immunity. And I think this is what's missing out of the media. This is what's missing out in the conversation. And I really hope that we can find ways in the years to come because there will be other pandemics there are going to be other viruses that get out into the human population and attack us. And if we don't pair great um, vaccine efficacy and vaccine education with great nutritional education, then we're going to be in hot water again. <laughs> well, and, and Robbie, the pan there will be other pandemics. Mm. And also the epidemics are already here. They are. Right. And so, like, for example, March was Colon Cancer Awareness Month. And I have diagnosed dozens of people with colon cancer during my career. And it is heartbreaking to walk into a room and tell a person who is in their 40s with children that they have advanced colon cancer. And I've done that many times. And that informs my motivation as a gastroenterologist with a very large platform to get out there and pound this drum and tell people, you don't need to make a choice between just diet 
and getting a colonoscopy. And I got a colonoscopy myself just a few weeks ago to make sure that I was safe. But I have diagnosed vegans with colon cancer. And I think it's important for people to understand that we don't need to separate these things. We can have diet and lifestyle and we can accept the best of healthcare. And this allows us to live our healthiest lives in the modern world. So going back a bit and sort of rewinding to the principles of this conversation, which is a good diet, can you outline for the listeners who haven't read your book yet or haven't listened to our previous episode, what are the key principles to underpin a good diet, which would lead to you know, a fantastic gut health and, and good overall well-being? The science of the gut microbiome may be complicated, but the choices that we make in order to eat to fuel a healthy gut microbiome, in fact, are not. They're very simple. We need more plants. Plants have everything that we're looking for to feed and fuel these microbes. Yes, that includes fiber. Fiber is found in every single plant that's out there, plus mushrooms. But they also contain resistant starches and polyphenols. These are the three types of prebiotics to feed and fuel the gut. Each plant has its own unique ways in which it will interact with your gut microbes. These gut microbes, they are diverse. They are unique. They have their own skills. Not everything does the same thing. And they have their own dietary preferences. So just like us, if we want to feed all of them, we need a diverse spread on the table. So the key is quite simply to eat a wide variety of plants. And I think for the purposes of plant-based news, where I see this message being very important is that veganism is to be celebrated. It is wonderful. And we are doing the right thing, but we need to also take care of ourselves. And taking care of ourselves involves feeding these gut microbes. And that means eating whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. Should we be eating those every day? And should we have like a very tight list? Because I think sometimes people feel a bit overwhelmed by that. And you've talked about your F goals and, and having a sort of like formula to the way we eat. I guess for many, it's about changing the way they eat and live. And eventually it just becomes like muscle memory. You, you just sort of know what to do. But how do we approach this? Because obviously it can be very, very overwhelming for people, especially on the sad diet, the standard American diet, which does make you sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, how do we how do we approach this? What are your sort of methods? Speaking to the person who was me 10 years ago, where I was probably 5% plant based, to rapidly ramp up and, for example, eat a five bean chili would have inflicted harm on my body. I would have been miserable. So the key from my perspective is to create grace for yourself and set realistic expectations where you are not trying to go too hard, too fast, but instead you're going nice and slow and you're ramping up over the course of time. But the, the key is actually so simply that it's abundance. It's avoiding restrictions. Yes, abundance can mean, in some cases, moderation, where you are reducing the amount that you eat of an individual food that perhaps causes trouble, similar to the fructans and wheat. You would reduce the amount of wheat that you consume at once. But over the course of time, your body, like muscle memory, grows stronger, becomes more capable, more functional, you will find that these foods that you've struggled with in the past, you actually are able to consume without restriction in the future if you just allow your body the, the opportunity to adapt with you slowly over the course of time. In my book, I talked about an acronym that I love 
to keep track of my ideal foods for optimal gut health. So I'm gonna tell you what they are right now. F goals, F as in fiber, fiber goals, F goals. Fruit and fermented, greens and whole grains. Omega-3 super seeds, I'm talking about chia, flax, and hemp. Aromatics, so I'm talking about the flavor foods, garlic, onions, stuff like that. L, legumes. Fantastic, they're so good for your gut. They're full of fiber. It's the fiber that makes you have gas. It's because it's good for the gut. And finally, S, I lost my mind on S. I had a lot that I wanted to say, so I have three of them. Shrooms, seaweed, or I prefer to call sea vegetables. And finally, sulforaphane, Basically, what I'm saying is cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and particularly broccoli sprouts. That's where the money's at. So fruit and fermented, greens and whole grains, omega-3 super seeds, aromatics, legumes, shrooms, seaweed. Those are my F goals. Those I'm trying to get into my diet as often as possible every single week. Fascinating. You you touched before about, and you mentioned many times about a damaged gut. Can you just explain what that actually is and what's the process to sort of heal it? Is it just all about getting the right microbes into our gut or are there other things at play there with the actual membrane and, and the sort of, you know, the, the, the stomach and the, the other elements of the gut itself? Well, living, living inside of us are 38 trillion microbes. They are a community, an ecosystem, no different than, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, Robbie, how life repeats itself just on different scales. Patterns repeat themselves just on different scales. And it's just a question of like, are you zooming in or are you zooming out? And so you could zoom in and you can look at these microbes. And if you had a microscope, you'd, you'd see something that resembles like a community of humans. Like mm. they're all in there and the they're city. Right. It's a, it's a bustling city. And then if you zoom out, you see us, but then if you zoom out further and you're up, you know, in space, you look down and you see planet Earth, and from that vantage point, humans are invisible. And our cities look a lot like micro, like microbes growing on a petri dish. Exactly. Yeah, just like just like cars that are going down the highway look like red blood cells passing through a blood vessel, so through an artery. So it's interesting how that exists, and just like a a city can fall out of balance and become crime ridden, so can our gut microbes. Right when there's a loss of balance, there's less good guys, there's more bad guys, and there's been sort of injury to the lining of the intestine, which we call increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut. When you have that, then that that is the manifestation of what we would describe as dysbiosis, which means a damaged gut. And dysbiosis is present in, in people that are suffering with food intolerances or GI type symptoms of many different varieties. So how do we fix this? Well, the, the key is that we need to support the proper microbes and we need to reduce the uh, inflammatory microbes, the bad guys, and we need to repair these tight junctions that form the intestinal barrier. We need to basically fix the leaky gut. There's actually something that we've been talking about this entire time that does that. Those are the short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids accomplish all of these goals elevate the good guys, reduce the bad guys, fix the gut barrier. How does and, it actually fix the barrier? Because obviously the barrier is made up of cells, right? The, the barrier is made up of cells, but what happens is that these cells are basically spot welded together with a protein called a tight junction. And when we get increased intestinal permeability, those tight junctions, they break down. And so then you get a hole that exists between the cells and that allows things to basically sneak into the bloodstream, which is right there, or sneak into contact with the immune system, which is right there 
that aren't supposed to get through. It's like having a wall of a castle and there's holes in the wall of the castle. You can't defend your, your citadel when you have a hole in the wall of the castle, right? You have to repair that. So what we're talking about is repairing that. And the way that you repair that is actually by refusing the cells together using these tight junction proteins. And that's exactly what the short chain fatty acids do. Like a glue, really, that's uh, bringing, bringing holes in a ship back, <laughs> back oh, from the sorry. brink of sinking. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, so the, the key from a dietary perspective is fiber. Now, the problem is that if you and I were to walk through the streets of London or we walk through the streets of New York City, you know, assuming it's a, an average sample of our countries, we would discover that roughly 19 out of 20 people that we come into contact with are actively deficient in fiber. So they're overeating, but they're not eating plants. So they're deficient in fiber. And then this is how we end up with a gut that's out of balance because you're not fueling it in the first place. So getting the gut back online involves restoring your balance with these foods. But then I, I think it's also important to recognize that there are other factors. Sleep, exercise, time spent outdoors, the people that you love, and our emotional state. When there is something unsettled inside of us from an emotional perspective, I mean, gosh, we're all going through crazy stuff right now. It can actually directly affect your gut microbiome. And this is why many people in times of stress, they manifest an increase in digestive symptoms during that stress. I'd like to turn the conversation a little deeper, literally, into a fascinating subject with regards to the gut and the microbiome is something called fecal transplants, which is sounds really gross, but it really helps a lot of people and it's completely transformed people's lives. And it really speaks to the power of these actual microbes themselves and the, their ability to completely transform us as people. There's been so many examples and there's a lot of studies that have gone of people who've had fecal transplants from uh, people who are severely overweight, morbidly obese, or people with severe mental health, like debilitating uh, mental health problems. And they've taken poop from healthy people, a lot of the time healthy vegans as well, blended it up and actually put it into these people with these severely, severely damaging health problems and have seen a huge and total reverse in, in people's symptoms. How could it be so simple? <laughs> it's just incredible how you can essentially relocate microbes from one human and place them in another it, it sounds ridiculously simple but it just seems to work obviously this is not a sustainable approach because you can't be transplanting fecal matter from one human to another on a regular basis it has to be a lifestyle change i suppose but what's going on there well what's going on there is that we're illustrating the power that exists with these gut microbes this is no longer theoretical this is actually increasingly coming to a point where it's been proven through scientific research. A quick example that I'll share with you because you just described several examples where fecal transplant may be beneficial. There's cancer research. So we, Robbie, we are transitioning from a time where it, we were previously describing what we saw in the microbiome, like, oh, if you have cancer, there is disturbance of the microbiome, to now we're in a place where we're figuring out how to modify and adapt the microbiome so that we can heal humans. And there's research in melanoma where what they do is they treat with immunotherapy. So they're giving a treatment and they discovered that if you give antibiotics prior to that immunotherapy, people do worse because the antibiotics destroy the microbes. So then they went on to study, well, what happens if you give a fecal transplant? And they discovered people do better. They survive longer, less likelihood of having a recurrence of their disease when you give a fecal transplant prior to immunotherapy. So then they more recently, in just December of 2021, 
This is, by the way, out of MD Anderson. Um, Dr. Jennifer Wargo is doing the research on this. She published a paper where they gave people, they looked at fiber intake and they drew the line at just 20 grams of fiber, which as a matter of context is still deficient. <laughs> the minimum recommended amount for women in the US is 25 grams and for men it's 38 grams. Yet 71% of the people were less than 20 grams of fiber. But if you were one of the people more than 20 grams of fiber, you had improved survival and reduced likelihood of having recurrence of cancer. Wow. For every five grams of fiber, there was a 30% improved likelihood of survival. Think about that. Cancer, 30% improved survival by like literally eating a salad once a day. Because obviously, a lot of the time, cancer is worsened when our immune response is lessened, right? Because obviously, we all have cancerous cells in our body all the time, and our body naturally would attack and remove them. Um, but if the immune system is low, if the immune system is not functioning as it should be, it just makes sense. It's all connected. That's what's so fascinating about it. And the diet and what we're eating is at the center of all of it. I'm just quite interested about like supplements and probiotics, because what's the difference between um, a probiotic which comes in through the mouth and into the stomach, and then potentially maybe depending on how effective it is, could populate the, the, gut, the gut microbiome, and, and then a fecal transplant, which is obviously an incredibly diverse injection of microbes. Can we repair our gut through probiotics or are they relatively ineffective? Because it seems to be a mixed opinion on whether we should be spending our money on them or not. Well, I think the reason that there's a mixed opinion is that some people are pushing back against the marketing agenda that exists with probiotics where companies are trying to market and they're going beyond the actual true efficacy of these tools. There are tons of patients that I've taken care of that have had a huge benefit from probiotics. To ignore that would be to ignore the truth. That doesn't mean that this is the end all be all. And, you know, look, one of the problems that we have, Robbie, is many people just want to pop a pill and not have to change their diet. You should change your diet, but there may still be benefit to probiotics in some particular settings. Now, comparing a probiotic to a fecal transplant is very different because the probiotic is like having this community, we could call it London, and us resettling 25 people into London and then seeing what happens as a result of that. It's a drop in the bucket. Whereas a fecal transplant is us actually introducing an entire new population into London and starting over. Wow. <laughs> I'm just visualizing that. It's in, it's intense, but it's so fascinating. One of the one of the other um, conversations that we've had a lot, and, and I'm, I'd love to hear more about it, is the connection between the brain and the gut. The, there's the gut-brain axis, which you've talked about, this connection between our gut itself. And our, and our brain obviously has neurons um, is made up of neurons and, and neural, neural, neural connections, but our gut um, lining actually contains some neurons, right? And people talk about feeling things in their gut, the anxiety when people feel, they often feel it in their gut. What is the relationship between our food and our digestion and our brain health and our sort of emotional health? Very strongly intertwined to the point of them being basically inseparable. There's a number of different ways. So first of all, the gut is sometimes called the second brain or you could call it the enteric nervous system. These are legitimate terms that are used in the medical community. It's completely wired with nerves. It also, so you have five times more nerves in your gut than you do in your spinal cord. Wow. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and serotonin, which is the happy hormone, right? It um, is important for our mood. It's important for our energy levels. 90% of it is produced in our gut. Only 10% of it is produced in our brain. 
Does that end up in our brain, the serotonin in our gut? The serotonin in our gut does not directly end up in our brain. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, but there are precursors to serotonin like 5-HT that do cross the blood-brain barrier and therefore could potentially be signaling molecules in the connection between our gut and our mood. Also, we've been talking quite a bit about short-chain fatty acids, which of course I'm obsessed with. Short-chain fatty acids travel through the bloodstream and they get all the way to the brain and the brain has a blood-brain barrier, just like the gut barrier. And the protein that holds the cells together in the brain is the exact same protein that holds the cells together in the gut. It's the tight junctions. And there are many people who suffer with brain fog. And they say to their doctor, I'm having brain fog. And the doctor rolls their eyes like, this is not real. Well, of course it's real. There's, there's you know, literally millions of people out there with this. What is it? That is breakdown of the tight junctions in the blood, in the blood brain barrier. And now you have leaky brain. The beautiful thing about these short-chain fatty acids is they actually have the ability to repair that just like they do in the gut. You can repair the tight junctions in both places with short-chain fatty acids. This is part of the reason why in randomized controlled trials, forget for a moment looking at epidemiology studies, which in this particular setting can be very difficult to interpret because people will make dietary changes based upon their mood. But in randomized controlled trials where you take a people with mood disorders, and you give them a high fiber diet, we see improvement of the mood disorders. Mm. Anxiety, depression, these kind of things. Do you think this is why so many people who switch to a vegan or plant-based diet report feeling lighter, more positive, it changes their mood? 100% and their energy levels go through the roof almost instantaneously. One of the first things that you're going to notice is that. And so, and I I think this is completely uh, legit. Now, one of the things that I'm actively working on these days is I'm working with, you You may know um, Professor Tim Spector from King's College London. Much of the research in, in COVID comes from a company called Zoe. And Zoe, we are working on personalized nutrition, personalized nutrition interventions for people. So I'm actively involved in clinical research with them, and I'm also their US medical director. And one of the studies that I'm doing right now is to try to make the connection between food choices gut microbes, and mood. And we have studies that say, like for example, that fiber is good for mood. We have studies that say that inflammatory gut microbes are bad for mood and that short-chain fatty acid producing microbes are good for mood. But I'm gonna try to connect the entire story together into one package. And so that's something that we're actively working on right now and I hope to have results within the year. Moving on a little bit to your new book, The Fiber-Fueled Cookbook. I'd love to hear a little bit about the growth strategy. Tell us about this. Well, the growth strategy. So the, the, the motivation in doing this book is that, yes, there were a lot of people who wanted more recipes that are sort of in the spirit of fiber fueled, like designed for the gut microbiome, designed for plant diversity. But also there are a lot of people who struggle to eat the way that I describe that I want them to eat. And they come to me either through the internet or they've been in my clinic and they say, doc, I'm really trying, but this is not easy for me. And I wanted to create a solution, a pathway that allows them to heal their gut and be able to enjoy the same food that you and I enjoy. And that's where the growth strategy comes in. This is what I, when I came up with this, by the way, I had to like completely rewrite certain parts of the book. I had to like actually backtrack. Growth is a word that I used many times in my first book, Fiber Fueled. It's a mindset. It means that we are valuing the experience. We actually, we actually welcome challenges. Challenges help us to grow stronger. 
And we stop fixating on whether or not we win or we lose, but instead we focus on the process that we go through and how we can make ourselves better humans. And it's the same concept that we apply to education, to learning, or to uh, physical activity, exercise. And in the case of your gut, your gut is no different. It can be adapted. It can be shaped. You can make it what you want it to be. You just have to understand the step-by-step process to get there. And in the case of the Fiberfield Cookbook, the growth strategy is our acronym that describes the stepwise, the steps that you will go through one by one in order, in order to heal and optimize your gut. G stands for genesis. What is the genesis of your symptoms? You have to start by understanding the root cause. For example, if you have celiac disease, you need to eliminate gluten. And when you eliminate gluten, you will be healthier. And then you move forward with your diet. So you have to know the root of the issue. And that's where we need to start. G is for genesis. R-O-W, I put these three letters together because basically you're doing this as a combination move. Restrict, observe, work it back in. I'm not a believer in long-term restrictive diets, but I am a believer that in order to identify which specific foods we are sensitive to, we need to have a temporary reduction. We need to see how we feel, and then we need to work it back in. And by flipping the switch off, on, off, on, we actually can identify the specific foods where we are intolerant or sensitive. That's interesting because going back to what we spoke about before with me with wheat or gluten, I've had sandwiches or wheat-based products recently in the last week, and I've had no reaction. I haven't had pain in the evening or anything like that. So that s- supports your, your thought about adding little bits in and, and, and then seeing how your body reacts. So now with this restrict, observe, work it back in, it's important for people to understand there are commercial products that are marketed to you directly as, as consumers that, you know, they say like with your poop or with your blood or with your saliva or with your hair, we can tell you what you need to eat. But the problem is they actually just create confusion because none of them have been actually backed up by clinical research. So the, the tried- These are food intolerance tests that you see commercially. Yeah. Yeah. Cost a fortune, but aren't very effective potentially. Oh, not only cost a fortune, but like they actually make you confused because then it says, oh, well, you are intolerant of this food. And you're like, but I don't have symptoms with that food. And then you continue to, you, you, you remove the food from your diet because the food intolerance test told you to, and that's actually, you're causing harm to your gut. So we need to apply this method to first isolate and identify which foods we are intolerant of and how much so that we know what our starting point is. And that moves us on to letter T, which is train your gut. Your gut is a muscle. It can be trained. It can be fortified. It can be made made stronger. And you can actually restore function that you didn't think that you were capable of having. And it's just a process that we go through to accomplish that, which is very similar to what we do in the gym or very similar to what you may do with a physical therapist if you have a bodily injury and you just build up to the point of growing stronger. But the last letter is H, which stands for holistic healing. And this is my way of reminding people that we are not just like carbohydrates, proteins, and fats that are bumping into enzymes. This is not just biochemistry. We are a whole person. We have a soul. We have a spirit. And that affects our digestive function. And every part of our body is completely intertwined. And then we are actually intertwined with the outside world and with our environment. And there's a number of ways that we can prove that. For example, they did a study with adults and they literally just put their hands in dirt for two weeks. I think it was 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day for two weeks. And their gut microbiome became more diverse 
as a result of just putting their hands in the soil. They had another study, Robbie, that I thought was very interesting where they took uh, a look at the shared microbiome among partners. So people who cohabitate. And what they discovered is that we share more microbes with our partner than we do with our siblings who we are genetically like. I've always thought that. I've always had the theory of how similar are the people that we live with in close proximity to and how we share a lot of health things because we are so close to each other. We're eating the same food. We are, if we're partners, you know, or married or, or whatever, we're, you know, kissing and touching and being close to each other. And so we are sharing microbes. <laughs> well, that's, and this is, this is the point. And it's interesting because they actually controlled for the diet and they found that despite, even when they took the diet out of the equation, there still was shared microbes. And then here's my favorite part about this. They looked at the emotional connection that people had. So like, do you have an optimistic, enthusiastic relationship with your partner or are you sort of on the down and out? And the people who had an enthusiastic, upbeat relationship with their partner shared the most microbes. That's so fascinating. So it really shows how dating, well, how relationships and food are so important and how being healthy and well is really important for a healthy relationship as well. That actually we are social are, creatures, right? Yeah. If you want to torture a person, you isolate them. And if you want to help people live to 100, you put them into a community of support and you make them feel love. Wow, so fascinating. Dr. B, that's all we've got time for now. Before we let you go, obviously, I'd love to uh, remind the audience about where they can find you and where they can also get your books. So you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at the Gut Health MD. Come find me at my website, theplantfedgut.com. I have an email list that people really seem to love where basically I, like there's a brand new study. I will kick out uh, right up of the study around the time that it comes out just so that you guys can hear the full breakdown. And my new book is the Fiberfield Cookbook. This to me is a toolkit for gut health. In Fiberfield, I told you why you should care about gut health. In the Fiberfields cookbook, I'm actually going to show you how to do it. And that means that if you have food intolerances, I'm going to help you to heal those food intolerances. But if you do not, I have 125 delicious recipes with full color and they are maxing out plant diversity so you can get as many plant points as possible. I'll teach you how to sprout. I'll teach you how to ferment. I'll teach you how to make sourdough bread. I mean, basically like everything that I think that you need to have a healthy gut, it's in this book. Amazing. I can't wait to uh, get a copy of it. Dr. B, thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast again. Always a fascinating and uh, just mind-blowing conversation as always. Thank you, Robbie. Always a pleasure to be here with you, my friend. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, nutrition, animals, and everything in between. Mm-hmm.